Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 131st episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Dan Goldie. Dan is the former president of Dan Goldie Financial Services, an independent RIA based in the San Francisco area that oversees nearly $900 million of assets under management for 275 affluent clients. What's unique about Dan, though, is that he built his firm up to nearly a billion of assets under management entirely as a solo advisor, without even a single full-time administrative staff member, relying instead on an external TAMP to provide all of his back office support so that he can fully and solely focus on serving his clients and building his practice. In this episode, we talk about the way that Dan has structured his advisory business, what exactly he does for his 275 clients up front and on an ongoing basis as a solo advisor, his approach of customizing everything he does to the needs of the client, and why Dan has been able to be so successful and productive, even without systematizing what he does for clients, because he customizes in a way that not only does more for clients who need more, but also saves time by doing less for clients who want and need less. We also talk about how Dan built his business, primarily through referrals after an initial stint in seminar marketing, the way he's been able to continuously keep time available to continue marketing and meeting with prospects with his relentless focus on improving his own personal efficiency and productivity, how thanks to the ongoing improvements in technology, he still sees even more opportunity to be successful as a solo advisor today, despite all the industry naysayers suggesting that consolidation is inevitable. And why, despite his success as a solo advisor, he decided earlier this year to take some risk off the table and create more continuities for his clients by selling the firm to Buckingham Strategic Wealth. And be certain to listen to the end, where Dan shares how the key to his business and financial success wasn't because outsourcing to a TAMP was necessarily more cost-effective than hiring and developing his own team, although it may have been, but instead because it was his strategy to stay disciplined and hyper-focused on spending as much of his time as possible with his clients and not on any of the other demands of the business that consume so much time for most other advisors. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Dan Goldie. Welcome, Dan Goldie, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. I'm a big fan of your podcast, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be on. Oh, thank you. And I'm, I'm, I've been really excited about this episode for, for quite a while now. There's this dialogue out there to me in the in the industry overall when you're when you're building an advisory firm that you know a- after you get started, you know we all struggle in the first few years, and like eventually you hit this point where I've, I've got enough clients, I'm getting some revenue. Like, okay, I think this business thing's going to work. I'm going to stick with it. And then you got to decide what you're building towards, and 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 there's sort of this split that's emerged where you know you can decide to stay solo, say lean. You know, some people dub this like a lifestyle practice. You know, get a good base of clients, make a good income, keep your life and business relatively simple. And then there are people that go the other direction, say like, no, I, w- I want to build a billion dollar firm, and I'm going to build the the staff or the infrastructure or whatever it takes, and it may be laborious, and I have to reinvest a lot, but like I, I want this vision of building this this billion dollar firm, and, it, and it's sort of this challenge, like. 
Do you want to build a smaller lean lifestyle firm that might be high income but doesn't necessarily grow huge? Or, or do you want to build towards a billion-dollar firm? And then I, and I came across this story of yours where you're a solo advisor with no staff just shy of a billion dollars. And, and not because you have like two clients that have half a billion each, so you just work with the two of them, like a, a full practice full of clients and approaching a billion dollars as a solo. And I said, like, this is a guy I have to talk to and understand. Like, what have you figured out that no one else has figured out about how you marry these two things together to, to try to build towards a billion dollar solo firm? So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have this discussion and learn what is that, what does that journey look like exactly? Well, happy to, happy to talk with you. I, I really don't know myself even, you know, there's certain things I guess about the way I approach the business and approach life, maybe that helped me out. But, you know, I also am very fortunate to be in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area, where there's so much wealth that's been created in the last three decades, joining the industry at the right time in the early 90s, working with dimensional fund advisors through all of their growth right when they started. So, I, I mean, I was really lucky in a lot of ways, too. So, so maybe just to get started here, paint a little bit of a picture for us of, of like, what this advisory firm looks like, you know, of, of assets and clients and I guess how you're structured and just help us understand the business. Well, so four months ago, I joined Buckingham Strategic Wealth. So now I'm a part of a, a large firm. But prior to that, I had my own business and built that up over 28 years. And at the date of valuation to join Buckingham, I had a partner working with me as an independent contractor. And together we had about 950 million in assets. And I think between the two of us, we had around 350 clients. So it was about 3 million average per client. And most of those clients were mine. I'd say 90% of the money I was advising. And that was our business. And so what was the nature of the the partnership? Because you mentioned independent contractor. Like, is this joint work clients? Is is this like a a paraplanner of yours that went out on their own? Like what what's the nature of this partner relationship? Well my partner's name is Dirk Gilliard and he joined me about 10 years ago. And he we we basically operate independently, but we share like a common back office service provider and you know he piggybacks on a lot of the things that I had built up over the previous 20 years before that. And invest the same way I do. We advise clients the same way, but he has his own set of clients and I have my own and we cover for each other and support each other as needed, but basically working independently under one roof. As I say, so sort of functionally, like you're two independent solo advisors who split some back office expenses. That's a fair way to describe it. Yeah. Which I think not, not uncommon for a lot of partnerships in the industry over the years. Like some are actually trying to like deliberately build multi-advisor firm shared vision collective thing and and a huge number of advisors simply like it's a way to share overhead costs it's a way to share office space which i would imagine is not inexpensive in the san francisco area so you know some some overhead things are still easier to split with other advisors even as you both essentially run your your solo firms under a shared expense structure yeah that's a fair way to describe it and you know it was good for both of us we've grown together and been positive all around. Interesting. So your solo pieces was, I guess it sounds like 
850 or 900 million of this of this base you were yeah, not not quite to the billion mark closing in on it with a uh, another few years of client growth or market growth but awfully close to that number right so so help me understand just what this what the business looks like and what you do so as we sort of backed on these numbers like your your portion of assets is 850 to 900 million about sounds like about 275 of the clients a year its average client is 3 million dollars like what what are you doing for 270 odd 3 million dollar clients like what is what does it mean to be a Dan Goldie client well i think i'm doing very similar things to what most advisors who use dimensional fund advisors mutual funds do Primarily, it's investment management, educating the client about how markets work, building portfolios, rebalancing them, reporting to the client on results, and then also doing financial planning. Nowadays, I guess people call it wealth management. So kind of the overall financial picture for people, helping them make smart financial decisions on balance. All my clients are individuals. I don't have any institutional clients or 401ks or anything like that. I really enjoy working with families. Most of the families, like I would say, are in the San Francisco area, but there are quite a few spread around the country. So you talked about kind of I'll call it sort of classic investment management process and then and then financial planning process. So I, I, I want to understand and and break these each of these down a little bit further because you've mentioned like having partners for back office, working with DFA. So what is what is the investment side of Goldie Financial look like in terms of what you do for clients when you're constructing portfolios for 275 clients? All the cl- all of the clients own a portfolio of, I would say, between maybe 10 and 15 dimensional funds. So we're, the portfolios are globally allocated. They're balanced portfolios tilted to small cap and value stocks. Very typical, I think, of all the people that use dimensional funds. I was one of the first adopters of DFA funds back in 1991. So I've continued that model throughout my career. haven't really changed anything. I've used new funds as they've come, as they've been developed. And so do you have like a standard model that all clients get or a standard set of models? Like how are you, or does every client get their own customized version of the various DFA funds? Like how do you construct these and pull them together? Each person gets a customized portfolio, but I do default to maybe a list of a dozen or so models. But I think if you aggregated all the models across all the accounts, there'd probably be 50 different ones. But most people fall under a handful of them. Uh, I have certain ideas about how I think portfolios should be allocated for most people, but everyone's different. And you know, if someone doesn't have all their money with me, I have to account for where the other money is allocated so that I'm doing the right job for them overall. So, you know, there's there's customization for everybody. And dimensional funds being like a building block approach, it makes it pretty easy to to build those asset classes and structure something that makes sense. And so how do you keep track of just managing a dozen models, 50-odd models in total? Like how does all this stuff get get implemented? Well, I work with Lauren Ward as my back office provider. So, you know, traditional TAMP. And 
they keep all those models for me and handle all the trading and the rebalancing. You know, I've created the the algorithm for rebalancing and, you know, we've created a bunch of, I would say, very efficient methods of managing all these portfolios, but they keep the database and they do all of that for me. So I, so I think when a lot of people think of TAMPs, turnkey asset management platforms, they, they think of them as like the you know, the TAMP has made everything turnkey, like here's our three models or our five models or our 10 models or however many we have on the on the shelf. You pick from the models that we've created and that's the deal. And so are, are the models you're using ultimately models they built that you adopted or like you, are you still making your own models and, and not necessarily outsourcing the model creation to the TAMP, just the model implementation to the TAMP? Yeah, it's the latter. Okay. I, I think I use Loring Ward differently than other advisors use them. You know, I'm a CFA and I enjoy money management. And so I build everything myself and create all of the, like the rebalancing algorithm I created and they implement all of it. So they, I'm basically hiring them to, to do the work for me. But the thinking part and the creation part, you know, I want to do that myself. And we've worked over the years, you know, we've been working with them for many years. And so we've developed efficient ways of getting all that done and having them scale that up to cover all of our clients. And so are you actively making model changes as well? Like, are, are you, I mean, would you, I'm not afraid of this, like, would you characterize yourself as active or, or passive? Because it sounds like you've got a, a pretty deep money management knowledge base. I think a lot of people tend to associate DFA advisors as being just purely passive buy and hold. And so are you like intense in the model creation, but then passive once you own it, are you still making shifts from time to time? Like what is the, what is the investment management philosophy and process look like? It's essentially passive. Okay. I'm a believer in dimensionals approach to how they view markets so it's, you know, I'm active in creating the model for the person and adjusting the model as needed, largely if changes occur to the client situation. I'm not a believer that I can time markets or add value that way. So, you know, it's, it's a strategic long-term buy, hold, and rebalance type approach. Okay. Okay. But, but you're doing, with your CFA background, a lot more in constructing particular models for specific client circumstances could that, that thus you're ending up with all these different models constructing an asset class portfolio not traditional active management so what what becomes unique to different client scenarios that just that you end out with up to 50 different models across all of these different clients. I mean, I know for some advisors, they'll say like, well, we, you, we, we customize the clients. Like we have a conservative portfolio and a moderate portfolio and aggressive portfolio. It's like the conservative clients get the conservative one, the aggressive ones, the aggressive ones. We, we customize it for them, but that often still only comes down to like three models or five models. Maybe there's an alternative version that's a little more tax managed, but not dozens the way that you seem to have, have evolved. So I'm, I'm just curious, like what else happens from a, call it a customized model perspective that you end up with so many different models for clients that get built? I think, you know, I have to really think about that to be specific, but certainly the, the assets that someone keeps and manages on their own or just any asset exposure they have 
outside of what I'm doing for them, I have to, I feel like I should adjust for that in my portfolios. So that's going to be one thing that's going to drive different, a different looking portfolio. Someone who gives me all of their liquid wealth, that would be one thing. You know, the exposure to real estate is another question. You know, do you consider someone's home there's sufficient exposure to real estate or do you add that to your portfolio? That would also cause them to be different because some portfolios would have real estate exposure, others would not. And and it sounds like that that answer will actually vary for you by the client. Like some yeah. of them you you will treat their home as part of their real estate allocation, some you won't, and then you're putting a refund into the portfolio. Some people have multiple properties, some people have larger properties, others just rent. You know, there's a whole variety of situations and I feel it's important to customize for each person so you're doing the right thing for them overall. And then the other possible change for people is, you know, I talk to people about exposure to small companies and value stocks and the risk factors that, you know, that I believe make you know, should have an impact in how you build a portfolio. And again, being trained in the dimensional way of thinking. And, you know, some clients are more or less comfortable with some of these things. Some people want more international exposure, some want less, some want more small cap exposure, some want less. That can also affect how you build a portfolio. And I guess the irony from the operational perspective is it might be a little bit more operationally complex to have all these different models for so many different clients, but Hey, that's lowering Ward's problem to implement as your service provider. That's that's not your problem internally. I don't think it's that difficult. I mean, you have a database and you have target percentages for each asset class. You know, it's all on the computer, and the rebalancing algorithm is all mechanical and math based. I don't think it's really that much extra work. And you're using the same core DFA building block funds throughout. So I guess the good news is like you, yeah. You don't necessarily have to learn, right? I'm just thinking from the client review perspective, like my, my gut thought is like, oh man, 50 different models is like, I have to keep track of 50 different, you know, stories and explanations for like what's going on in your portfolio, what's going on in your model. And it's different for you than others because you've got this unique model. But if you're building from the same DFA building blocks, then, you know, if, if the small cap fund is doing better or we're doing worse this quarter, like, clients still own that. That's actually still the same conversation throughout. It's like the the conversation, I guess, still stays pretty scalable because the building blocks are the same for you across the board. The investment story is the same for everybody. It's all a you know global, passive, factor-based portfolio strategy. So that doesn't change. It's just you know the 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 amount of risk they're taking or the the tilts that they have to small value and so forth. You know, maybe they have real estate, maybe they don't. You know, those things are simple, just shades of gray, but the strategy is the same for everyone. The overall philosophy doesn't change. So I've got to ask then, like, how does this work from a from a cost structure perspective? Like, do you pay basis points to Loring Ward, like a lot of TAMs? Do you pay sort of a a flat fee, like, hey, I could have hired these staff members, but instead I'm I'm going to give you a flat fee that replaces my staff member labor costs. Like, how, how does this work from a cost perspective as you just you know, manage as a business the decision to use a, a third-party provider? Well, prior to the acquisition, prior to joining Buckingham, I was paying, I believe it was structured as a percentage of fees. I think they also work with some advisors on basis, like as a basis points charge. 
I think mine was a percentage of fees, but that's all changed now because Buckingham also owns Loring Ward. So right, Buckingham is you know, there's no longer that doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll, I want to come back to that in a little bit about like the the decision to to go along with the the Loring Ward deal to Buckingham and 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 get, I guess tuck into Buckingham as it were. Mm-hmm. But can you tell us, or at least approximately, like? What kind of percentage of fees were you were you paying to Loring Ward? Because I'm just trying to think of this in the context of like traditional advisory firm, the overhead cost of hiring staff versus outsourcing it. Like, what percentage of your fees did you have to pay to Loring Ward to do this work versus what you might have done if you were going to hire the staff internally and try to build it yourself? Well, you may not believe this, or you may think that I'm very foolish, but I honestly I don't remember. I, I mean, I could give you a ballpark. It might be 15%, something like that. Okay. I, I have always approached this business as focusing entirely on the client and what's best for the client. And like I make these decisions, I think I negotiated that fee split with Loring Ward maybe 10 years ago when I rejoined them in 2009. I haven't even looked at it since. Interesting. Well, there's a certain mental relief of like I... I pick my service providers and I structure my business the way that I want. And then the whole point of outsourcing is I don't need to think about this stuff on an ongoing basis. Yeah. I give it no thought, you know, it was structured in a way that I thought was fair and it has breakpoints. So as I get bigger, you know, the fees go down and, but I say, I haven't looked at it in 10 years, even in through the, the acquisition process, all of the details of that, I didn't look at it. Interesting. Because from your perspective, just, I feel like I'm getting a fair deal I don't, I don't need to think with this. I guess it I feels sort of similar to even the investment philosophy that you have as well. Like we're going to be really hands-on up front to construct this the right way, whether it's a portfolio for a client or the or the outsourcing deal with with Loring Ward. And and once you put in the time to construct in the first place, the whole point is be comfortable where you are and spend your time on better things. So for the client, like yeah. enjoy your vacation, stop worrying about your portfolio <laughs> and from your business perspective, I've I got a back office provider. They're solving the problems I need them to solve. I don't I don't need to keep tinkering with and thinking and obsessing about what this what this fee and what this cost is. I'm happy with my service. Let's focus on other things. I think there's a lot of value to that way of thinking. You know, just focus on what's important. There was a book written in the 1970s called Inner Tennis by Timothy Galway and. As a former tennis player, you know, I read that book and basically the the message of that book, he was was written for beginning tennis players, people like adults who were just learning to play tennis. And his main message was just don't think about too much. Just let your body hit the ball. Like if you think about his motivation came from his observation of children who were learning to walk or kids who were learning to throw a ball for the first time, they didn't think about it. They just did it. They let their body just go through the motions. And they, of course, threw naturally and perfectly. Right. And you know, that's the kind of thing I'm doing with business is like you make intelligent decisions and then focus on what matters. And to me, what matters most is what's best for the client and making sure the investment solution is right and the financial planning decisions are correct. You know, I don't want to... F- burden myself with all these other things about running a business. And that's big reason why I have always outsourced to a TAMP is it gets all that stuff off my plate. So, so talk to us about the, the pricing end of things as, as well. So uh, I guess it's sort of two questions, like what were you or what do you charge 
clients, like what does the fee schedule look like? And then how do you handle the lowering ward cost portion of that? The clients pay a fairly standard 1% declining fee schedule, you know, 1% on the first million and then going down from there down to, I think, 35 basis points at 5 million. Okay. Just a steady declining scale. Buckingham has essentially the same schedule I was using for all the years I was doing it. Okay. And the costs for lowering word, you know, I pay those. And the client just pays the fee. So you didn't you didn't think of it as like one percent's my fee for what I do, but then the client's gonna pay whatever that comes out to be over fifteen bips or something for what Loring Ward does, or like I'm gonna mark up my fee fifteen bips since they're taking fifteen bips. You just say like, look, this is my fee. And I'm just going to chop my lowering word cost out of it the same way, I guess, I guess the same way you would other overhead expenses. Yeah, I just thought of it as an overhead expense. And instead of hiring a staff and having higher expenses inside of my firm, that was the way, you know, I'm outsourcing that. And that's a, a cost that I bear. And actually, the way we had it structured is the fees were actually paid to lowering ward. And then they paid, they kept their portion and paid out the rest to me. Okay, well, because... When they're doing all of your back office, they're doing your they're doing your fee billing and, and remittances as well. Yeah, yeah all of that they're, they did all that for me. And then talk to us about the the financial planning side and and what you do from a financial planning perspective for clients. Well, lately I've been using Money Guide Pro, but that's a fairly new thing. Prior to that, I really didn't find that the the financial planning software that was available in the industry, I didn't think it was very good and very like scalable and flexible. So I tended to use a lot of Excel spreadsheets and just yellow pads and HP 12C calculations. So what, so what swung you to Money Guide Pro in particular? I don't think I could point to any one specific thing, but I started looking at it in recent years and it seemed good. Like I, I seemed to like it. And in, Prior to that, when I had ever looked at these software packages, I just didn't think they were very, like I said, I, just didn't, I didn't like them very much. I didn't think they added a lot of value. So I you know, just did everything by hand. And so what does is, what is planning look like for, for clients of the firm? Like, Are you a big upfront plan, big like ongoing plan every year, or I, you know, just when you got financial planning questions, we'll dig in and, and you let clients dictate the pace. Like how does, how does that financial planning process work for you? Cause I'm cognizant, like 275 clients could potentially be a lot of financial plans <laughs> to create. I don't, I don't prepare the big plans that I think a lot of planners do. I, I, I have always approached it as, you know, as I viewed the client having a need and specifically for that particular need. You know, the big voluminous plans. I remember when I was first getting into business 28 years ago, that was, it was more like a sales document than anything else. And it kind of turned me off to it. And, you know, a 50 page financial plan to me was stale as soon as it was printed. And I just didn't, it didn't strike me as being very valuable. So it's, it's more of a, a planning process, I would say that I go through with, with clients, like a, a discussion of different alternatives as things come up for them, keeping the dialogue going. So I think that's probably different than most financial planners in my my view of that activity. So so then walk us through what a new client process looks like. You know, we we've met her once or twice. You told me about what you do. I think it sounds good. I'm 
I'm ready to have you manage my dollars and and do ongoing financial planning with you. So, you know, say, great, you know, send me the paperwork, Dan, I'm going to sign the paperwork and we sign off. Like, what happens next? What actually happens for that new client now as they're coming on board to work with you? Well, we get all of their assets to the extent they want to, you know, have us, to the extent of the money they want to have us manage, we get all that consolidated. Most of the money we have at Schwab, you know, get the accounts open, get the transfers completed, get all the money over to Schwab, organize it in a as few accounts as possible, and then build out the DFA portfolio of funds there based on the investment policy statement that we prepare for the client. And everyone's different though. It's, it's hard, it's hard for me to answer the question because I, I, you know, I have certain things that obviously need to be done, but then it depends on the situation for the client. But I usually approach building the investment portfolio first and then tackling whatever financial planning items they have after that. And so do you ever worry from the end of, I'm going to build the portfolio of the client and I'm going to get more of these financial planning questions. And I'm going to find out there's some other financial planning thing that makes me maybe want to have built a different portfolio. I've never had that issue that I can recall. I mean, I, we do talk about the, the big picture, of course, but in terms of tackling the, the planning items, I do that after building the portfolio. I've never had an issue with it I, I, that I can recall. I haven't had like go back and change the portfolio. Because you're, because I guess you're still getting into on the portfolio end, just goals and time horizon and sort of the classic things that still get used in a portfolio construction context. Well, I think I cover all of the areas of their financial life to to build the portfolio, and then you know drilling down as they, as and if they feel they need to with other things after that. And so. Does this happen over a span of multiple meetings? Like, is this all done in one meeting up front? Do you have like a two or three meeting process of how you walk them through? Like, what is a what does that new client experience look like? Well, so so another another principle of mine is like I don't I don't have a one set way of doing things. I really believe strongly in customizing the approach for every person based on my perception of what what's will work best for them and what they've described to me that they're looking for. So sometimes we do everything all at once. If someone really wants to move quickly and they're comfortable with it, and I feel like they really understand, you know, the, the process and the philosophy and everything, and there's a really good fit. I mean, I, I can remember times where we just had one meeting and then we're off and running. And I've had other times where we've met three or four times, you know, most of the time I would say it's probably one or two meetings, but even that has changed over time. I remember when early on in my career, people would want to meet in person most of the time. And now it seems like people want to do remote meetings, like through video chats or just on the phone. Even for the new client process. Yeah. I mean, the, people come you know, from all over the country now, whereas early on in my career, they were mostly local. And you know, now you've got traffic problems in major cities and people don't want to drive and they're working longer hours, you know. So my, one of my big philosophies is you know, always adapt to what is best for the client and what the client prefers. And if they want to communicate with me through a video chat, then that's the way we do it. And if they want to come in and meet in person, then that's the way we do it. If they want to meet on a weekend, that's the way we do it. 
it's all about them and what works for them. And what I'm finding is, you know, it's everyone's different and things change, you know, over time as well. Yeah, I, I'm, I've been fascinated to find that even within our, within our firm as well, because we're in the, we're in the DC metro area for, for Pinnacle and, you know, similar to, to San Francisco, you pr- pretty horrible traffic if you're trying to get anywhere from anywhere that you have to get a car to drive to. And, and, and we've seen this uptick of even, I'll call it like air quotes, local clients who would rather schedule to meet with us virtually than come to the office and, and, and meet in person. And it, and it sort of gave me this revelation a few years ago, you know, like so many firms, we've got like a, a segmentation structure, you know, our, our, our bigger clients will tend to meet three or four times a year, our smaller clients, we might only meet with once or twice a year. And I sort of had this moment of realizing, wait, so, so basically our, our service standard is, if you don't have a lot of money, you only have to sit in DC traffic once or twice a year. But if you have a lot of wealth, like your time is really valuable to you, those people get to sit in crappy DC traffic four times a year. Like that's good service. Like, right. <laughs> no, they pretty much hate that. Like, no wonder they don't want to come in. Like, I, that's pretty much backwards and, and had never really thought about it that way. Right. From our end, it's, hey, I sit in my office and do meetings. So, my valuable clients, I meet with them more often. I give them more opportunities to sit across from me and meet with me and hadn't really thought of it as much from the client perspective of, yeah, so they got to slog through traffic four times a year to see us instead of only once or twice a year to see us. Like that's, that's not necessarily a positive. It, it takes like the first 20 minutes of the meeting just for the road rage to wear off in the DC area because it's so bad here. Yeah, every I think it's so important to really be always thinking about what is best for the client? What is their preference? You know, looking at it from their point of view, where's the value added? You know, for some people, they might think, you know, the best value added is I don't have to speak to my advisor all the time. You know, they just take care of it for me or it's really efficient. We do it by email. Everyone's different, you know, and I, I think one of the part of the art and skill of being a really good advisor is being attentive to that and being able to diagnose and approach different people differently. I learned this actually from my old tennis coach at Stanford University, Dick Gould, who had so many championships over many, many years. He had you know, championships over nearly 40 years coaching. And to me, what made him great among many things, one of the things is like he approached every player individually. And you know, tennis players can have big egos and they can have you know, different ways of approaching things and different temperaments. You know, and he was able to create winners for so long. And I think that was a big part of how he did it is he was able to customize his approach. And, you know, there's a real art to that as a, you know, it's a, it's a learned skill, I think. So, so how often do you end out meeting with, with clients then? Like, is there a set cadence or set frequency? No. <laughs> there's nothing set. It's, it's, I, I want to make sure I'm touching base with people regularly, but I, I try to approach it based on what they want, what they tell me they want, what, how I perceive, you know, what their needs are or yeah, everyone, again, like I try to approach them differently each time. So when you say you at least try to touch base with them regularly, what does, what does regularly mean in, in your context? Well, I communicate with all my clients every month. I send a monthly 
like a newsletter communication, which is really an educational piece, something about how markets work, like a reminder of how we're investing in the approach. And there's, you know, endless topics. That's one way, but that's... And is that something you, you write and create as a CFA guy? Yes. Okay. And I've been doing that for 15 plus years now. So okay, that's something I do every month. So every client gets the monthly touch on on investment related stuff and you know that that nice reminder like Dan is still here and he's still <laughs> steering the ship and he's looking out on the horizon and making sure that he knows what's going on right there I think there is a a level of reassurance to clients that is that's very important. Yeah, I try to make that communication something that's usually timely, something in the news answering questions that I've gotten from people, you know, I kind of try to get a sense of what, what people are thinking about or concerned about at that particular time. Take the questions that are coming up in client meetings and, hey, if a whole bunch of clients ask me this, then I'm going to write about it in the next newsletter. Yeah, because it indicates to me that this is something that people are concerned about or asking about. Right. And other times it's just reiterating the approach because, you know, we do need to repeat to clients many times what we're doing because they don't remember it's not their area of expertise. So that's also really helpful. So I remember when I started doing that, started writing that letter, the number of questions that I would get and concerned communications and things went way down. So it it is pretty effective. So that's one thing, but that's not customized to any one person. Right. Right. But, but beyond you're sort of customizing it to the client base in the aggregate, because you're not just using a third-party commentary, you're writing it and you're writing it based on the kinds of questions you're getting from clients so you know what to write about because it's literally the things you're answering in a meeting. Just answer it one to many. I put a lot of thought into those letters and I spend a lot of time writing them and try to make it high quality. I want that to be something. And out of curiosity, like how long How long is this? Like, Is this a couple of pages? Is this like 10, 20 pages? How, how deep do you go on these? Two to four pages. Okay. I'm a big believer in simplicity and keeping things efficient. So usually two pages, sometimes three, at most four. Okay. Trying to get, you know, an important point across, you know, as efficiently and artfully as possible, I guess. But so I do that. And then, you know, I try to reach out to people maybe every, again, it depends on the person. Like I, I try to know, I try to remember everyone and get a feel for what, you know, what kind of, how many discussions they like to have. It really just depends. And people go through cycles where, you know, things are happening at some point in their lives and they need a lot of communication. And other times, you know, things go quiet and they really don't need that much discussion. So again, I try to read the situation for everybody and, and respond accordingly. Do you have a sense if there's at least a a general average, like you typically see most clients twice a year. You typically see them once a year. You typically only see them once every two years. It's not much is changing. It's hard to say because some people like to meet in person, although that's going down rapidly. Some people like to communicate by email. Some people like phone. Some people, you know, there's just different ways of communicating. So how do you, like when you see someone, how do you define that? Is it just like an email or a phone call? That's a touch. Right. And it's probably multiple per month because, you know, some people you know, email back and forth a whole bunch of times because they've got something going on. Other people, you know, maybe I don't talk to them for six months. I don't think I go beyond six months without some sort of personal communication of some sort. 
Okay. But, but the, but the six months, like that might be a meeting that might be a phone call check-in yeah. that might be an email, like just whatever touching base with that client kind of means in the context of that relationship. Cause different clients clearly have different preferences at a minimum. It would be an email to them saying, just, just checking in, let me know if anything's going on or a phone call message like that, or, you know, some, something, some kind of personal reach out trying to ask if there's anything that they want to discuss or if anything new is happening. And most of the time there's nothing going on and they just tell me that that's the case. And, you know, then I can check that off. And, and so do you actually use some system to literally track these and, and, and check them off? Is there some sort of monitoring process you have around it or you just sort of rotate through the whole client base and make sure we're touching them regularly? It's the latter. I keep a list, you know, and I remember who I've talked to and sometimes I can go through my email history and, if I really, if I can't remember the last time, I guess, suppose I should be more formal about it. Well, some, some would say after the first $900 million, you may have figured out a system that works just fine. So I guess I, a couple of questions I've got here then. Do you, where do you see your capacity? Like how, how many clients can you add before you just run out of time in the day, week, month, year to do all these meetings, calls, emails, touches, even with the investment stuff outsourced and, you know, some clients still have planning questions where you got to dig in or do something Money Guide Pro. Some of his investment questions, there's just a sheer mass of the number of clients that you've got now. Is is there some capacity target or threshold in in your view where you just can't take any more without hiring staff? There must be, but I've been asking myself this question for probably 20 years. <laughs> and I think what's happening is I keep getting better you know, at what I do gradually. And I keep working with Loring Ward to get more efficient at how we work together. And maybe the biggest factor is technology has just transformed the way that I work. 28 years ago, it was completely different than today. It's much more time consuming to meet with people. And I mean, technology has made everything so much easier and more efficient. And I don't know what that whole, I don't know how that will develop into the future. So I just, I don't know. I've been continually trying to get a feel for, okay, am I, you know, do I need to stop taking new people? Do, you know, how do I adjust this? And my business has always grown pretty slowly and steadily just through referrals. I don't really market the business at all. So I don't get like rapid growth typically. I just get steady streams of referrals and you know it's the the new people coming on that take a lot of time. And that's just the way I you know, I just I, so I don't know where the limit is. It is an, a striking point to me that there's there's so much discussion these days about you know the the need for size and mass and merging and acquiring for economies of scale and you know this this conversation that's loomed for well I guess the better part of twenty years now since Mark Hurley issued a pretty well known report in the very late nineteen nineties that essentially said the the future was consolidation and mega firms and all the solos were going to get squeezed out and and then I look at firms like yours where you've been a solo throughout and not only are you not necessarily getting squeezed out as a solo. It's just getting better and more profitable and more efficient because all this technology makes it easier to be a solo than it was 20 years ago, not not harder. Yeah, that's true. Everything is, you know, it's 
I would have to say it's easier to do what I did, you know, to do it today than what I did 28 years ago. I think it's got, it's got to be easier today just from a, there's so much, so many better tools. But the other thing I think that enabled me to really be able to handle the number of clients and so forth and do it well is always using, always outsourcing, you know, to a TAMP. The leverage power of that is probably the biggest factor in all of it is, you know, I don't, I don't have a staff of people that I have to manage and that, you know, is very time consuming and it's distracting. And, you know, I work by myself in an office and I stay focused all day long. It's, it's much easier for me. I mean, you have to have a certain personality style, you know, I'm an introvert, so I'm comfortable with that, but it's, it's enabled me to be very efficient and get a lot of things done in a short period of time and outsource the the stuff to other folks that I don't enjoy doing or where it doesn't add value. And I just focus on the clients. Yeah. There is sort of a, like, it's the ultimate introverts practice of just we're, we're going to keep building with clients and we want to have the close relationships with and just keep outsourcing and delegating. So we don't have to hire and manage people. And, and as you've shown, like you can, you can take that an awfully long way if you just keep doing and iterating on it and let it, let it compound for a decade or few. Yeah. And I mean, I could continue, I could have continued to do that and I think continued to grow, but what really struck me when the Buckingham Loring Ward deal happened and enabled me, gave me the opportunity to piggyback on that was, you know, that I've got a lot of money and clients relying basically entirely on me. And, and I didn't think that was right. And so just for the best interest of the client, to, to, to merge with a larger firm and have the protection, you know, for, for the client, for the benefit of the client, you know, so that the burden is taken off of me. That's, that was the main motivator was, you know, to have a succession plan. And if something happens to me, the clients are taken care of and everything is, you know, professionally managed by a large organization. So rather than, you know, try to hire a successor and train and develop them or, or, you know, do sort of the classic, reciprocal continuity plan deal, you know, Hey, if something happens to me, you take my clients, something happens to you, I'll take your clients. Like I know a lot of individual advisors that do that back and forth. Your, your decision was, I'm, I'm going to tuck into a larger firm and, and then they can drive and support that continuity plan. So I don't need to think about this stuff anymore. I just, I know they're there if something happens. Yeah. I wanted, I, I thought there, I thought for the best interest of the client that, having a larger firm like Buckingham involved with all of their professional expertise and also just having access to a huge team of support for me was nice, but mainly, you know, that, so there's a lot of reasons, but that was, that's the main one. And so from the business perspective though, like you, you didn't still have an interest to say, well, but I, but I still want to hold on to all of my, equity that I'm building and growing and this, this, what has to be rather sizable profit margin off of the business? Or did you, were you able to still structure kind of a quasi independent role where you can sort of do what you're doing, but you've also got the, the Buckingham backstop? Like, how do you, I'm just wondering for a firm that would have, that has such an asset base and revenue base as yours and such a, a profit margin, like what's the, I I understand the desire for succession, but I, I just, I'm presuming there also still has to be some kind of tension between 
or I can hold on to this fantastically profitable business that I own the equity and that continues to grow. And like, if I just deal with this a few more years down the road, it just gets bigger and more valuable. So is that not a factor, not a driver? Like, how do you think about that trade-off? Well, yeah, I mean, I certainly thought about it. it. To me, it just seemed like the right time. I'm 55 years old, so maybe I'll work another 10 years. It just seemed like the right time to take risk off the table. I mean, it was an acquisition, so I, you know, I profited well from it. And, you know, the clients are better off for it too. You know, so the, it was a de-risking approach for me. So a de-risking, like you're still there, you still get to serve your clients, you still get a healthy income on an ongoing basis, but you took a chunk of dollars off. It's no longer concentrated in the business. You've now got a liquid asset dollars. You can reinvest or do whatever you're going to mm-hmm. do with while you, while you still, I guess, participate in at least some upside of just you're still servicing clients and getting paid for. Yeah, I basically right now I'm still doing the same things I've been doing for the whole time I've been in business. I work out of the same office and everything looks the same. You know, the name on the door is different and I have a lot more support and help and I'm adjusting to working with a large organization, but it's, you know, it's good growth and it's, you know, the, the main thing is it's, it's better for the client and it was the right time. You know, I'm, happy with working with Buckingham. They're, they're a fantastic group and I'm learning a lot and it's all, it's all good. (laughs) So I am curious, like there, I, I feel like one of the big discussions in the industry this days, particularly around solo advisors is like the need to systematize. You have to systematize and standardize your processes that you can get more efficient and scale and grow. And, and you seem to have gotten, well, frankly, what way further than virtually any other solo advisor I've ever seen in terms of assets, number of clients and, and, and revenue and the rest, and have done it with a, you know, a not particularly systematizing approach. And like, I don't mean that in a negative or pejorative way at all. As you said, like, it's all about customization for you and that's part of your value proposition and connection to clients but i mean i think most most people think of customization as kind of the antithesis of scale and efficiency hey that's what happens when you customize it gets less efficient but hey we're customizing and and somehow you seem to be highly customized and ludicrously productive at the same time so like what are we all missing (laughs) that you seem to have figured out in what you're doing there? Like what, what, yeah, what gives? I, I really don't know. I mean, I've, I have a, you know, background, just my, my personal background, I've had to become really efficient at doing things and manage my time. But I think probably working, working with a TAMP for all the, the whole time and, pushing out as many things to them as possible and always making decisions to, to be more efficient with resources and time and getting more done with less. I don't really know. Are there, are there particular things you've learned or or like breakthroughs you've had for yourself about just how to be more efficient and more time productive for yourself since like this whole burden pretty much rests on your shoulders? I I have to have someone help me to figure out, you know, someone would have to analyze what I do all day to say, oh, okay, that's that's different, that's good. I, I really don't know. 
I mean, it's this kind of thing like you get a little better every day and you keep working on it every day. And after many, many years, you're, you're pretty good at something, you know, and you don't really realize what it is that you're doing that's particularly good. I, I don't know. I really don't know what to say about that. I do think it's very helpful to have, you know, to outsource everything. There's so few distractions. You know, I basically am able to just work on my clients and I don't have other, other issues that drain my time. And I, you know, part of what strikes me as well is I, I think relative to, you know, the size, like the, the, the depth of client base, the affluence of client base, I, I, I feel like from the discussion, you probably meet a little bit less in person with clients than, than some others. I mean, I think for a lot of firms, by the time you get up to clients that have three plus million dollars for a lot of advisors, those tend to be the, like, those are my A clients. I have to meet with them in person four times a year. And your model would break down pretty quickly if you met with that many people that frequently over and over again. But what I'm fascinated by is, you know, you're you're not meeting with those clients as much as some others do, or you're finding other ways to touch them, right? A monthly newsletter that goes one to many, and they, not everything has to be an in-person meeting. Some are phone check-ins and some are email check-ins. And you're growing and clients are staying and they're paying your fees. I just there there's something that that I don't know, that strikes me there that maybe our capacity problem for a lot of us is just that we uh, effectively, we, we over-service our clients or we, we put more service burdens on ourselves to keep our clients than what you actually need to do just to serve a client well to the point they're satisfied and they stay. And that that's part of the distinction here is you're, you're finding a better balancing point of what clients actually want that makes them stay as opposed to maybe the ideas we put on ourselves, like this client has a lot of money. We must meet with them four times a year without even bothering to ask them, like, do you actually want to meet four times a year? And is that useful to you? Yeah, I've always tried to tailor my services to what people want or you know what they tell me they want or what I perceive that they want. Like I say, in the very beginning, people used to come in a lot, you know, but it was, as I think back now that you're saying that, I think I was the one who recommended it. Like, okay, let's meet every quarter. We're going to meet every quarter. And people would come in. And it was sometimes a struggle to get them to come in. Like, you have to persuade them to come in, you know. And I guess over time, I evolved to letting them doing what they what they told me they want. And nowadays, especially, again, we already talked about it, but like, you know, the the traffic and the congestion and time constraints, you know, people don't really come in that much. They, they would rather communicate in other ways. And so I think it's important to be flexible enough and have the technology capable of communicating with them the way they want. Yeah. There, there is a, to me, just an interesting, I don't know, phenomenon or question of, you know, how how much of the things that we do to service clients, including I think meeting frequency in particular, because it is very time intensive. It's not even just the meeting time; it's the it's the prep for the meeting time and the scheduling back and forth and creating whatever reports you're going to create and the rest. Like there's a whole bunch of ripple effects of how much time and productivity is consumed in the aggregate for for our volume of meetings. And you know, I've always observed the same thing in our firm as well. There's usually this crossover point. I feel like on average, it's it's somewhere around three to five years in the client relationship where you're meeting regularly, maybe a little more frequently, particularly if it's a higher value client and an A client. And and then this this point happens where 
it gets harder for them to come into the meeting. Like it gets harder to schedule them to come in for meetings as, as you'd mentioned, like it, it starts getting harder and, and it almost always seems to end out the same place where eventually the, the client says something like, look, you know, I, I just really don't like, there's nothing going on that I need to talk about right now. So I think I'm good. Like, I love you, but I don't need to meet with you. Like if something happens to me, I'll call you. And if something happens that you think I need to be aware of, you call me. And short of that, I don't know why we're having these meetings for the sake of having the meetings. And and like it, it, it takes a couple of years, either a, I think for some clients just to build the trust to really be willing to let go and say, I trust that my advisor will call me if there's something that we need to talk about. Or, or I think, frankly, looking back for a few of them, like, you know, when we push them and say, well, the way it works around here is you're a valuable client. And that means you come in and meet with us four times a year. I think a lot of the time the the client tries to be a good client, right? So you say the way it works is you meet four times a year. So they try to come in and meet with you four times a year. And then it takes a few years of them doing that and maybe not actually finding value in the meetings before they I know, just build up the courage to say, you know what, I just actually really don't want to meet with you that often. <laughs> because we told them that's how it's supposed to work. So it takes a while for them to get comfortable saying, I actually don't want to be serviced that way. Except I think as your model is is showing, like that might actually be a lot of clients that don't really need to be serviced that way. And you free up a whole lot of time when you start changing your men, your your mindset around that. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And especially if you've been working with someone for a long time, you know, sometimes people say to me, like if they're concerned about something, they'll say, well, Dan, I know what you're going to say, but I want to hear you say it anyway. And, <laughs> you know, that kind of, uh-huh. you know, that that's when someone's familiar with how you advise and, you know, the responses that you give, you're consistent, which I think a good advisor should be then you know they're, they they know what you're going to say before you even say it they don't really need to see you you know they might want to read in an email or in a client letter that you're saying that you're, you know, you still believe the same thing yeah so it, it could very well be that that a lot of advisors are pushing too many meetings or too many conversations on people more than than is necessary i don't know i agree with you 3 to 5 years of you're advising someone for that long you you should have their situation pretty cleaned up by then and there shouldn't be a lot going on. If you did a good job, I think, you know, things are pretty quiet, you know, like going to a doctor and they take care of you. And then after that, you know, there's not much going on. Yeah. Well, and, and I feel like we, what we end out with after a while is just this phenomenon of, of almost literally, like we have a meeting for the sake of having a meeting to find out whether we needed to have a meeting. Because the first thing on the agenda of every meeting for those clients in maintenance mode is like, you know, number one, has anything changed in your life recently that we should be talking about, right? I mean, we always want to ask that. That's part of the, the check-in process at the top of the meeting. And then the client says, nope, everything's good since the last meeting. And it's like, well, well, awesome. We got like 57 minutes left in this meeting. How the grandkids? Got any trips coming up? Let's talk about your portfolio for 54 minutes. I didn't really want to, but we have an hour meeting and you have nothing else to talk about. And like, I could have staved all this off by just having a quick phone call or an email before that says, hey, Anything that like just checking in, anything you want to talk about and schedule a meeting about, and give the client to either say yes, I would like to meet with you, or just give the client a chance to say nope, I'm good. It's a great, glad we touch base. I'll talk to you again in a few months. Call me in the meantime if anything comes up. Yeah, that's exactly the way I approach it. It's like when I reach out to someone if I haven't heard from them in a while. It's, that's the exact approach. Is is anything happening? You know, do we should we do we need to talk? Do you have any questions? If the answer is no, then that's it. And there's there's really no reason to go further. 
So, Jeff, shifting tracks a little bit, talk talk to us about where where you get two hundred and seventy odd three millionaire clients to 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 build this firm up to close to a billion dollars as a solo. Like, where where do where does all this client base come from? Well, it's hard to say. The business has grown pretty steadily, you know, pretty slowly but steadily over 28 years, 27, 28 years. And it's almost entirely from referrals from existing clients. So once I got, you know, that that base started, it, it kind of just kept going. So I think the keys have been, you know, client retention, keeping people happy and retaining the ones that you bring on and then growing steadily each year. And, you know, being in the business long time, that helps a lot because it's, you know, it compounds over time. And I mean, when you think about it from that perspective, as you said, you, you've, you've been in for, for almost 28 years. And so just, just on a, on a simple linear basis, like almost 280 clients in 28 years, like you're still only talking about an average of 10 clients a year. You're talking about an average of not even one client a month, which, you know, a client a month is a healthy, active growth pace, but that's not a like, that's not a blistering, overwhelming growth pace. That's just a, you know, you add one a month and 28 years later, you got almost a billion dollars in a management. How about that? There's, there's no magic to it. And I, uh, you know, I've not had any like spectacular growth or any kind of, you know, unusual thing that happened to me. I just kind of just steadily keep plugging away and maintain the discipline. And I'd say I probably bring on maybe five or 10 clients a year, something like that now. Nothing spectacular, but, but I do, you know, I, I, I hope that I attract people that are quality and, you know, my, my quality clients refer me someone it's, you know, it's usually someone like them and the fit is, is normally good. And, you know, so the clients, you know, when the fit is good, they, they tend to stay, you know, they tend to be happy. So I've been, you know, tried to be selective, I guess, and people that come on board. So, so what, so I get it at this point. Client referrals get a little easier after the first hundred, first few hundred clients that are are reasonably happy and being well served. How did you get it going at the beginning when you when you started out of the gate? And obviously, client referrals weren't on the table because you didn't have any clients to refer you yet. Well, the first year, you know, this is going way back, but I I met with Alan Werba and John Bowen. The, the firm name was Reinhardt Werba Bowen back then. It's now called Loring Ward after several name changes. And they, at that time, this was 1991, I met with them and I was just off the professional tennis tour and I was ready to and eager to get into the financial planning business. And they were working with this radio personality whose name was Jim Jorgensen. And he had this radio show on AM radio, which was, it worked back then. People listened to it and they had this deal with him where they would have these seminars around the Bay Area and present their ideas about investing in dimensional funds. And as part of their attempt to attract me to work with them, they said, well, we'll, we'll let you do four of these. And so I did those. And I probably picked up, I don't know, 20 or 30 clients right off the bat. And that was what started it. And from there, I just kind of just talked to people I know and serviced those clients and built it up. It was that was the only real marketing activity I can remember ever doing in my career where I actually purposely did some kind of presentation or seminar or something. And so how do, how do you get or bring in the referrals? Like, are you, uh, 
an ask for referrals kind of guy or someone that tries to prompt them on a periodic basis? Like, how do you just get and maintain this kind of flow? Because I think for a lot of advisors, like, yeah, I got some clients. I feel like I serve them well, not losing them. Like retention is good, but you know, I don't, I don't have a billion dollars worth of referrals like Dan. So we're like, what is it about your referrals process that seems to work a little bit better? I don't know. I don't ask for them. I just try to do the best I can at servicing my client and just wait for them to send someone to me or, you know, that's, that's the way it's always worked. I, I don't have any magical formula. I, I don't know if I've been any more successful than most people. I don't know. But I, I never felt comfortable any with any kind of approach. And I've heard several different strategies like to ask for referrals, you know, in indirect ways, direct ways. I've never felt comfortable doing that. I just try to service them as best I can and wait to hear. And I've had enough referrals over the many years that it's, you know, it's grown. I wish I had a magical answer to give you. <laughs> and and as you go this as you go this route with referrals, particularly now you're at a point where your your average client is is several million dollars. Like have you set minimums at this point? Will you'll still take anyone that comes in, they just kind of skew affluent because you tend to work with a fairly affluent cloud, so they tend to hang with other affluent people. Like how do you how do you you know, keep the pace lifting at the kind of asset base that you're working now? Well, for a long time, I've had a $1 million minimum. Okay. And now having joined Buckingham, they've asked me to have a $500,000 minimum. Okay. So that's, that's where we are. And, and how do you communicate that? Like, do you tell clients, Hey, if you're thinking about referring me, here's my minimum. When you get someone who's referred, you say, Hey, just to let you know, I've got this minimum. Like, uh, how does that, it's the latter. Yeah. When someone gets referred, I, first thing I do is get in touch with them and have a phone call to just check and make sure there's a, a, a good potential fit for us, like what they're looking for. And if, I mean, I can tell after I talk with them, if they have enough money and then I'll, if necessary, I'll mention it. It's, it's usually just comes up when someone asks or I don't know. And, and, you, and do you worry about the, I don't know, the fear that I hear at least from, from some advisors, like, like if I tell them I have a minimum and then they don't meet the minimum, but they got referred to me and their friend does meet the minimum. Like, is this now weird because they couldn't qualify, but their friend who referred them qualified. Do you like, do you worry about that stuff or just, I don't worry about it. I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I've probably run into that a few times. I don't recall how I handled it, but I mean, I have, I'm sure all of us have from time to time accepted clients below the minimum, but I won't go too much below it. It just depends. I, again, I try to handle every situation independently. And you know, if someone, if I if I really like somebody and they don't meet the minimum, then that's fine for, with me. At least when I was running my own business before Buckingham, that was fine with me. You know, I, I, I I'm pretty casual about stuff. I I don't have like hard and fast rules. Like I, I guess you can tell. I can try to customize it for everybody. And right, you know, just depends. Interesting. And <laughs> well, and again, and you you aren't particularly having capacity constraint problems. So as, as long as it continues to work, it continues to work, I guess. Well, my philosophy is if, and it, you know, it's re- worked reasonably well over all these years is I'm going to do the best I can for whoever I'm trying to help. And if I need to lower the minimum to really help someone who I like, who I think would be a great fit. I mean, within reason I'll do that. And 
Same thing for current clients. Like I'll, I'll bend over backwards to help them in whatever way I can, even if it's you know, not directly financial services related. You, know, you never know what comes up. And it's, you know, life is unexpected things happen. You know? and, but if you're, if you're a good person and you do good work and people really trust you and they like you, then I think you're going to be successful. You know, it helps to be in the San Francisco Bay Area where there's a lot of wealth. Right. But, but those are principles. That are, those are timeless principles, I think, that work anywhere. And so what was, the, what was the path for you to come into financial services and build this type of business in the first place? Well, I was a student at Stanford, and I was a tennis player there. And they introduced me to one of the donors at Stanford, and I'm sure at all schools, they have you know, wealthy donors give money to help fund athletic scholarships. And I was on scholarship. And so one of the things at that time that Stanford did was they wanted all the athletes to develop relationships with some of the donors, you know, to help the relationship grow for the university and keep money coming into the athletic department. So I ended up developing a, a relationship with someone who ran a financial planning firm. And over my time in school, I ended up studying economics and becoming interested in finance. And then I had a, a three-month internship at that person's firm when I was a senior and just kind of kept that going. I ended up actually becoming a registered representative of an insurance company, broker-dealer, when I was actually on the professional tennis tour. So I actually worked in financial services very much part-time for a while when I was actually playing professional tennis, which is very unusual, but all right, wait, like you're a you're a rep for an insurance BD while you're on the professional tennis tour. Are you like yes? <laughs> are you working with other tennis pros? Yes, like, I was. Yeah, so like that's the marketing bro. Like, hey, I, I <laughs> I'm just like, hey, you know, uh, sorry I beat you on the court there, but like, you need any help <laughs> now that you've lost the match? Like, <laughs> yes. One of my first clients was my agent. Some other clients were professional tennis players, you know, that were highly ranked and just other people that I knew from Stanford. Like, you know, I I was basically approaching it as, you know, this is, this is like an internship, a very low paid internship. And I'm trying to learn how this business works. And I don't know if I want to do this when I'm done playing tennis, but, but it's a work experience and it's something to do because you won't believe it, but being on the tennis tour is actually very boring because there's a lot of downtime, travel time. So from from an intellectual point of view, there's not much stimulation going on when you're a professional athlete. And this was a way to keep my mind engaged and do something interesting outside of the sport. And so I did that. I studied for the CFP exams when I was playing tennis and kind of just built that up and got some experience. And then when I was done playing tennis, I had to quit early due to an injury. Then I transitioned pretty easily into the business. And so at the point you transitioned, like, did you go back in with that insurance broker dealer? Did you go out on your own? Like how did you, you tasted some portion of the industry at that point, obviously you're now living in an independent RA world and have for a while. So what, like, what was the, what was the path as you were saying, okay, I think I'm actually going to make this my career. Well, what happened was I got off of the tour. This was in late 1991 And I started interviewing with a whole bunch of different firms. Being a professional athlete, you actually get access to the CEOs of large organizations. So I had a pretty good Rolodex of contacts and started talking with people at different 
wealth management firms and mutual funds and other people in the financial services industry just to get a feel for what is out there or what I might want to do. And I ended up just haphazardly meeting with John Bowen one day at Reinhardt Werber Bowen in San Jose. They were this, at that time, small financial planning firm. And they were, and they met with him and he mentioned, you know, dimensional fund advisors and the name of Gene Fama and Ken French and names that, that I had recognized from studying finance right. in school. And I thought, I'd really like to meet those guys. And so I went down to Santa Monica. And fortunately for me, some of them, like Gene Fama is a big tennis fan. So, you know, we went out and played tennis and their <laughs> ideas just sunk in. I thought to myself, like, why aren't people doing more of this? Like, this, this was the very beginning of Dimensional's approach to advisors. Like this was when they were just opening their door to advisors. And these ideas they were telling me really resonated in large part because when I was interviewing with these other money management firms, I couldn't figure out why their track records relative to indexes were so poor because they're, these were the best firms in the industry and they were, you know, they had the best and brightest people. They were, you know, so impressive, you know, super nice offices and super smart people from the best schools. Yet when I would look at their track record, I, I couldn't figure out why the returns were so low because in my, in my world at the time as a tennis player, everything is about competition and result, you know, and you get paid based on results as an athlete. Right. And it's an ex like extreme meritocracy. Yes. And so I'm, you know, to me, that was the way that the investment world should work. Like you should be smarter, you should be better. You should, you know, your track record should be better. And it, and it, there was a real disconnect. And then when I met with the folks down in Santa Monica and they explained to me their ideas about market efficiency and some of the things I was taught at Stanford, but just had forgotten, then it all kind of like a light bulb went on and it made sense to me. And I thought, you know, I can build a business around this. This makes total sense. And so then I signed up with Reinhardt Werber Bowen as one of their advisors. I guess I was an IAR back then. And that was how I started. And then I did those seminars that I mentioned and eventually had my own firm. So out of curiosity, what, what led to the point that you decided to have your own firm and not and not simply stay in IAR of of Reinhard Warber Bowen. I mean, I feel like for a lot of advisors that that's a major career crossroad at at some point. This decision of whether to whether to stay in an employee advisor model or go out on your own. Well, I you know I'm I'm pretty ambitious person, so I really wanted to have my own shop and be in, more in control of things. So that that's the main reason, you know when. When you're in control, I feel like there's you know less risk. What's interesting for me, like you, you felt going out on your own and starting from scratch was the less risky path. Well, yes, because I controlled all the decisions. So, you know, there when you're when you're a representative of another firm, you know, there's a lot of things that they decide that you can't change. And if you're in control of everything, to me, if you you know, I trust myself, I trust my judgment, so I'd rather rely on myself. And if I make a mistake, then I only have myself to blame. But, you know, there's decisions that, that I want to be in control of. You know, it was a long time ago, so it's hard to remember exactly. But, you know, if you're an ambitious person and you, you want to be in control and build something of your own, you know, that's, that's how I felt. And so did you, like, did you come from a, 
a family of, of entrepreneurs where like this was the background and, and this kind of entrepreneurialism was, was sort of celebrated in the standard in the first place? No, not at all. I think probably that came from being a tennis player and growing up competing. And, you know, when you're a professional tennis player in particular, you're, you're, you're a solo entrepreneur, you know, all, all the tennis players that, you know, they all are basically running their own little business and, you know, they hired coaches and they hire agents and they have cash flows and, you know, they, they run a little, a little business and, you know, it's probably that experience. Like I've, I've never up until four months ago, I was never an employee of anybody. So I was working for myself. So it could have been that just my experience with the sport. And I don't really know. Interesting. It's a striking path. You know, we had, oh gosh, it was probably almost two years ago. Now we had Alan Moore on the podcast and, and, you know, he had actually made a similar comment around entrepreneurism as, you know, as someone who got fired or let go from the first two firms he was at, cause he wasn't a great fit for them had, had said like the, the impression that left on him was, you know, the being an employee is incredibly risky because your income can just instantly go to the zero on the snap of a finger when the person who runs the firm decides that you're no longer the right fit there and that and that the entrepreneurial path of building and owning your own business, like that was the safe route to him for that that similar, like I'm in control of my own destiny kind of mentality. And, and that control, I think for him, similar to you, like that that control aspect, the the de-risking aspect of control was worth more than just the raw risk aspect of, well, you aren't going to walk away from a salary and people would pay you and like literally build this from scratch and have all that responsibility on your shoulders as well, which not everyone wants. It's it's maybe a, a different kind of risk, but it is fascinating to me just talking to people that have that entrepreneurial mindset to the point of saying, no, 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 it's less risky to go out on your own and build your thing from from scratch because you control your decisions and your destiny. Well, it seems to me risk is all perception, you know, so someone who perceives the risk of entrepreneurship being lower for some reason, I mean, it's valid to them. So it's yeah. okay. And and what you just mentioned, this gentleman, like saying that it makes sense to me that it's less risky if I'm working for myself, I have my own firm and I have 300 clients. Okay. That's 300 people that aren't all going to fire me at once. And if I'm right. an employee, I've got one person, I'm entirely reliant on that firm if they decide to make a change or something and then they let me go that's you know it only takes one decision to that to happen so i see his point <laughs> yeah that's an interesting way to frame it that just you know, as an employee one person can fire me and and take my income to zero with 300 clients it takes 300 people to fire me to yeah have my income go all the way down i can i can usually at least do something and not piss off 300 people all at once <laughs> right one one you know who knows so, so as you've gone down this road, what's, what surprised you the most about like the path and the experience of building your own advisory business? Well, one interesting thing that's unique to me, just because I think of my experiences is that as a, as a professional athlete, the world, you, you really, to be successful in that world, you have to be very competitive. You have to basically, you know, when to get paid. And so it's a tennis players are largely focused on themselves and they build teams around themselves, especially modern players. You know, so it's a very competitive kind of dog eat dog 
world, there's not a lot of collaboration going on. And one of the things that struck me immediately when I started working in, in, the, in business is that to be successful in business, it's all about being collaborative and helping other people. And the more people you help, the better you can do in your career. And that was a, it was a surprise to me. I just, I just, I, I guess if I had thought, really thought it through beforehand, it would have been obvious, but that was surprising. And that was you know, a shift I had to make. And when I recognized that. So is that a hard mentality shift? I mean, I would think like you, when you, you know, when you've gone down the tennis road as, as, as far as you did to, to playing at the professional level, like, you know, the, that solo competitiveness, you know, self-confidence, I, I, I can do it kind of mentality has to get pretty deeply ingrained. Like, is that difficult to straight to change, to restructure, to, to retool as you got into the business world? It's hard to remember. It was a long time ago, but I do remember very clearly realizing that and then having to work on it and just, you know, once, once you make the change, I think it's, it's easy to, you know, to keep improving. I don't know. It was, it was, it was a, definitely a shift in mindset having been a tennis player for so long and just thinking that was the way the world worked, you know, to, to seeing it very differently. But it's the kind of thing, once you see it, you're, you're, you're permanently changed. Like it's obvious. <laughs> right. And it's refreshing, you know, to be able to work collaboratively instead of always competing. It's, you know, it's difficult. It's draining to be competing all the time. So how has your role changed within the firm over the years or, or I guess, or has it? It really hasn't changed much. I mean, over, are you, are you referring to like the whole 28 years I was? Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. I've been doing, uh, I, maybe this is one thing that wor- has worked, helped me do what I do is I basically just been doing the same thing. I just try to keep getting a little better. And one of my mantras is, you know, how did I get better today? More efficient or whatever, but it's more or less the same. It's pretty much identically the same investment philosophy. It's just getting more efficient, incorporating technology more, getting better at what I do incrementally day by day, week by week, having my own firm as opposed to being a, a representative of another firm. You know, that was a shift but not a major shift. I'm still basically doing the same type of advising work. And, you know, we're, I've always worked only with individuals and families, just trying to get better at it. It strikes me that that sort of continuous incremental improvement, how did I get better today, I would imagine is another piece that comes to you from the world of training as a professional athlete so long, similar mentality of continuous self-improvement. Yeah, Absolutely. I can still hear my coaches that I've had over the years, you know, drilling that into me, like, you know, work harder. How much do you want it? Discipline, get better every single day. It's all about improving and developing and staying disciplined. You know, so I've, appro- I've applied those principles, which are just ingrained in me, you know, in my business. So what does that in? improvement effort look like for you right so i'm just thinking of this in the context of so in the professional athlete world like you work towards continuous incremental improvement and you do that by practice drills repetition exercise like you know there there's a there's a physical training regimen that you know if you do in a persistent disciplined manner 
builds incremental results in your skills and ability and strength and, and agility and so forth. So like, how does that translate for you in the, in the business world? Like, do you, do you get a coach? Do you look at certain things in the business? Like I'm going to get 1% better at that every week for the next 12 weeks. And like, that's my training focus. Like, does it translate in that concrete of a, of a manner to say, I'm going to, I'm going to train I'm going to train as an advisor the way I trained as a professional athlete. Well, I've never had a coach, but I do approach things pretty systematically. So I do remember trying to think back, you know, having not thought about this really at all. I do remember thinking back to when I was really learning the craft. I used to read books, lots of, you know, any book I could read on financial planning or business communication presentation skills, like anything that I thought would remotely help me become better at, as a business person, I would read and study. Any, any books in particular that you recall that were like breakthrough moments for you? I don't remember. It's, uh, you know, it's like 25 years ago, 30 years ago, okay. but I can remember traveling on the tennis tour with stacks of books, like <laughs> studying for the CFP exam or how to communicate better, how to write business letters. You know, it was a bit crazy. Like I'm you know, probably the only per, only tennis player that had you know textbooks. But well, that's probably why you were able to get clients while you were on the tour. Yeah. Like you were legit. You're like, <laughs> dude, that guy's actually reading a book in the locker room on finances. Like he's a finance guy. Well, it's it's something you learn, I think, as an athlete. You know, you're 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 preparing and you're training and drilling and you know just what you described earlier, and you know you apply that to what we do. And well, you got to learn, you know, so you, you better be trying to get better and trying to improve your knowledge base. And, you know, that's part of what drove me to go to business school and get a CFA and a CFP. Like I wanted to be prepared. I wanted to have all the tools necessary, all the knowledge to be as successful as I could be. Well, and those are, those are not trivial things of like, oh, by the way, I went back to my, went back to business school and got my CFA and my CFP. Like that's a, it's a fairly intense multi 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 year training regimen, as it were, unto itself. Yeah, it's probably six years, maybe five six years. Yeah, but you know, I was relatively young coming into the industry, and I felt like I really, I was very interested in all that stuff anyway. But just, just to have the credibility and the knowledge to have a strong base to start from, I, I felt that was necessary. What does a typical week look like for you at this point? It's really hard to say. I, I work in the same location as I've been working for the last five years. I approach each day independently. I recently moved away from the congestion of the Bay Area. So I live in the mountains, the Santa Cruz Mountains, about an hour from Palo Alto where my office is. So I, I drive an hour. So I don't come. I work at home frequently. It's a, it's a long drive. So there's not a specific like Mondays I do office work, Tuesdays I meet with clients. Is that like so? There's not a there's not a specific routine to it. No, I just try to set appointments and arrange things just wherever they fit in. I I don't you know it, I guess it's you know I'm thinking about it now as you're asking that question. I've never done that and. I tend to be like certain parts of my life. I do tend to be pretty routinized. Like I, I like routines. It, it, it feels comfortable to me, but 
as far as scheduling goes and dealing with my time, I've always just been free with that, just arranging things where needed. So out of, out of curiosity, just any, any idea why? Like I just, uh, you know, I know a lot of people who are really successful, particularly in the athletic world. And and one of the things I hear so often from them is kind of they, they, they build their routines and they stick to their routines and that's how they get disciplined to their routines. And that's how they, maintain the training and and achieve the results and just it it it's striking to me for someone that had so much success as an athlete building those routines that just it it doesn't seem to have been your go-to in building your advisory firm didn't stop you from succeeding very very much the opposite it would seem but it just it's it's striking to me that you didn't you didn't end out even if just by habit routinizing more of the business the way you're other trainings were over the years. Yeah. I, I really don't know the answer. I haven't given it thought, but as you, just as you're saying that, I'm thinking, okay, what is it perhaps about tennis in particular that drives more of a reactionary approach to things? And, you know, when you play tennis, perhaps it's somewhat different than other sports. I really don't know. But, you know, in tennis, you have to be, to be successful during competition, your mind has to be clear. Like you have to be not thinking about other things. You're just reacting to where the ball goes and you have to react in a split second. And so you learn very quickly, if you're going to be successful at that sport, that you're just reacting to what your opponent has just done. You're not thinking about it at all. So you're you know, when you train, you know, so maybe there's something about that where like in the brain, you know, you just you're learning to just adjust on the fly much like that book I mentioned earlier where you know, like yeah. they, they found that tennis players learn best when they're not thinking about other things or distracted. They just let the body, just let your body flow with it. Which to me is very much what you build around the firm, right? You, yeah. you outsource as much as possible so you can stay solely focused to be in the moment and react to a split second with clients. It's kind of like you... you you I've not thought a, about it, you, but yes. Yeah, like you, <laughs> you didn't build the firm like you're training as a tennis pro. You built the firm like you're playing like a tennis pro. Yes, that's very yeah, that's very well said. Yeah, because when you're training as an athlete, that you know you are doing repetitions and you're building strength yeah. and whatever it might be. And then, but when you're in competition, the reason you build all those those skills is so that they can you can call upon them immediately without thinking. That's why you do it that way. Well, and and again, to me, that's. That's what makes it so striking, I think, for your firm and how far that you've been able to go with it is is the the depth and volume of what you've outsourced. You know, most firms out there, and I think just in practice, like when they get to a certain size, they say, you know, look, look at what I'm paying for all this outsourcing. I could I could hire these people and save on costs and scale it myself and drive better margins and and build it. And and yeah, you can do that, and you may even get those economic results. But but then you have to manage the people and deal with the stuff and make the decisions, and you you have more things that you quite literally have have ownership of and responsibility for, and then you start losing your focus. And and to me, what's so striking about what you built is like I I don't know anybody out there who built even from zero to a hundred million, much less zero to nine hundred million, who can in good faith say. Yeah, my role really hasn't changed that much over 28 years. It just got a little more efficient with technology. Like there, there's something I think really unique about the focus of how you truly just kept your time and your role focused on clients throughout and just not getting 
caught up, mucked up in anything else along the way that almost everybody else gets mucked up in at some point. Yeah, I think part of the beauty of outsourcing all of the, like, you know, outsourcing to a TAMP is just as you mentioned, you're not, you don't have all those distractions. And, you know, when you have a staff and, and a large firm and like, there's just a lot of time drains and emotional drains that if you're comfortable working on your own and really staying focused, you can really ramp things up dramatically. And like you mentioned the cost, like a lot of advisors don't want to pay the cost of a TAMP and they think it's yeah. you know, cheaper to have a staff. I never really considered that. I, I, to me, it's it's all about focus and discipline, and perhaps one of the you know perhaps a missing piece that should be factored into that calculation is okay. Well, what are we going to lose with all of the the distractions and things that come with having a large organization? Yeah, the time drain and all that. I mean, if you once you factor that all in, maybe the cost of the TAMP doesn't look so high. Yeah, I don't know. Well, and you make an interesting point that just. To just say, like from a business philosophy perspective, I made the decision to, to to use the TAMP and to stick with the TAMP, and it wasn't about the cost. It was about the focus and discipline. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So so as you've gone on this journey, what what was the low point for you? I don't think not nothing really stands out. I do remember, you know, obviously the 2008 market decline was really emotional that was that was difficult suffering through that drop with clients well and 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 being a solo advisor where i would imagine a whole a whole lot more of those clients were calling or wanting to meet or wanting reassurances all at once and that's all on your shoulders when you're solo yeah that was that was a tough time i remember being very stressed mainly just worried about clients and how they're feeling but that I mean, we all we all went through that. I don't think my experience was any different than anyone else's, but you know, we made it through. So, what advice would you give to young advisors looking to become a an advisor today? Oh gosh, well, the things that worked for me were to you know prepare, like learn as much as possible. I think you know some kind of an internship or you know any kind of way to get experience and try to work with the best people you can find people that you really respect that look like they've done well in the industry. And, you know, that's, to me, it's about like we had talked about the training that one does, you know, for, for sports and, you know, how does that translate into, into business to me, you know, preparing really well and training yourself really well and, and learning as much as you can early on getting your designations completed and, and not so much to have the initials, but to really learn the, the, the subject matter. And I would say, you know, network and speak to as many people as you can that are really knowledgeable. I mean, I really got a lot out of those early days working with the folks at Dimensional and meeting Gene Fama and learning from him. And, you know, those folks are the leaders in finance in the world, really. And I was lucky enough to have an opportunity really young to be influenced by them and be stimulated you know, academically to, to learn more. So I would, I would approach it that way. Try to try to learn as much as you can. And when you're, when you're starting out and then parlay that into something that works for you based on you know, your own individual abilities. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just that word success means 
different things to different people. And so, you know, as someone who's built what I, I think anyone would objectively call a a pretty ludicrously successful business at the the size and the efficiency and the scale that you've reached. I'm just wondering, how do you define success yourself? I would say, you know, did I get better today? <laughs> hmm. Every day I try to look, you know, that incremental improvement and I try to look at my whole life that way. Like, you know, did I, was I a better father today? Was I a better husband? You know, what did I do to make my business better? I don't know. I'm always trying to look for ways to improve and maybe service my clients better, you know, any, any way like that. And, and that's a good day. If I've, if I did something to improve my health and improve other people, make my clients' lives better, then I feel good about myself. That's, the, that's what I would say. Well, and it strikes me that, that, to me, that very much comes back to the core of what it seems is has built the firm for you. This this kind of constant focus on self improvement, such that you can go you know twenty eight years of scaling up to almost a billion dollars and and still be a solo and still be able to do it successfully and still be able to be productive with with two hundred and seventy five odd clients and that you know that that kind of service mentality you have that ultimately becomes a thing i think that that drives referrals you know i think a lot of us say that we have we we have good service we try to respond to clients promptly and do those things but you know it it strikes me in the discussion here that just you know your your the way you describe what you do comes and how you do it comes so quickly back to the client even to the point of like yeah what we do is not meet with our wealthy clients too often because that's not what they want which is sort of intuitively obvious on the one end and then absolutely not the thing that most advisory firms do. They meet with their wealthy clients a ton because we impose that upon them and maybe that's what they want and what's valuable and maybe it's not. And I think we don't always pause to ask that question of the client the way that you seem to just, in a positive way, relentlessly focus on what does the client actually want out of this advice relationship and then what can I do to give that to them that seems to drive a lot more referrals to you than a lot, a lot of advisors manage to generate. Yeah, it could be. And I, I also try to respond very quickly when people call or email me. I've always felt that was really important. Even if I don't have an answer to whatever it is they're, they're asking me, I'll shoot them an email and say, okay, I'm, I'm on it. You know, I'll get back to you shortly or, you know, cause I always value that when I email somebody, you know, I really value quick response, even if they don't respond fully right away. That's always something I've worked hard on. And I actually feel very comfortable doing some work on weekends. Like to my way of thinking, if I get something done on the weekend, well, then that's something on Monday I don't have to deal with. So to me, it's not a big deal. I just kind of allocate my time as it comes and respond as quickly as I can. So maybe that also helps. Well, and you seem to have found a pretty darn productive way to do it given what the given what the firm has grown to. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you Dan for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success podcast and and sharing the story. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. You bet. Want even more ideas, tools and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog Nerd's Eye View at www.kitsis.com 
where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.